All right. Uh, now, I think I have us on page uh, 32, starting in chapter 2, verse 28. Is that where you have us, Eddie? Uh, I think I got page 30. Yeah. 30, I got Can you read it? The theme is the test of life. The test of life. John wants all of us as readers to examine ourselves in light of these tests. And his intent is, as we examine ourselves, and by God's grace, seeing that the description of one who has life, one who passes the test, that fits us, we can gain assurance of our salvation. He's, he breaks down this test of life into three specific tests. The test of fellowship. I don't know if you recall how we define fellowship. It was not as we commonly think. If I have a close relationship, say with Bill here, well, I can fall out of fellowship with him. We can have a falling out, but we can be restored to fellowship. We can go in and out of fellowship. But that's not how John is using fellowship. John is using fellowship in the sense of, the word means to share. It means to share in something. And John is using in the sense of sharing in the life of God. Well, if you're, if you're sharing in the life of God, you can't fall out of that. You either have that or you don't have it. And once you have a, a once you share in the life of God, once you share in eternal life, it's not something you can lose. It's not something you can forfeit. So the test, the first test of eternal life or life is the test of fellowship defined as sharing in the life of God. And as John is going to do through all three of these tests where he's developing this theme, all three of these tests, the first, of course, the test of fellowship, he addresses the ethical test. And that's, of course, involving our I thought I was stronger. <coughs> Ethical involving our conduct. If you pass a, a test, this is what your conduct will look like. And then the doctrine, of course, involves what we believe. So, in each of these tests, John is going to identify what one who has fellowship conducts himself, how he conducts himself, and what does he believe in order to pass the test. Now, you, you say we're on page 30? Is that where we are? Let's start at the bottom of page 29. Let's start, start at the bottom of page 29. Chapter 2 and verse 24. So we're, we're at the section here, fellowship demands persevering in the faith, persevering in the faith. Chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. Let me, uh, let me read those verses one more time, and that's, that's where we'll pick it up. So 24 through 27, chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. John writes, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, 
you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. All right, 24 through 27. Bottom page 29. In the previous verses, John has denounced those who have defected from the faith. Here John turns again to address the importance and necessity of persevering in the faith as the mark of those who have fellowship with God and eternal life. John exhorts his readers to let that which they have heard from the beginning abide in them. Verse 24. If the message they heard from the beginning abides or remains in them, John promises that they will continue to abide in the Son and in the Father. To speak of the gospel as abiding in the readers is another way of saying that the readers were to continue to believe the gospel. All right, so the truth abides in me as I am continuing to believe the truth or to believe the gospel. They were to persevere in the faith. Those who persevere in the faith are assured that they will continue to abide, that is, continue to have fellowship with both the Son and the Father. Furthermore, having fellowship with the Son and the Father is nothing less than having eternal life, that which God has promised in the Gospel. Now, John declares that what he is writing in these verses was intended to warn them about those who were endeavoring to deceive them, a reference to the false teachers. John's purpose in writing these things was thus to protect the readers from those who were denying the truth of the gospel. In the face of this threat, John's readers could take comfort. The anointing or gift of God's Spirit given them by God at salvation continues, note please, present tense, continues to abide in them. As a consequence, John says, there was nothing the false teachers had to offer that the readers needed to be taught. Let's take a look at verse 27. That's how we should understand verse 27. He says, you have no need for anyone to teach you. He's not saying, well, pastors aren't necessary. Sunday school teachers aren't necessary. Bible Institute teachers aren't necessary. <laughs> He's simply saying, as far as those who are trying to deceive you, you have God's Spirit. And God's Spirit is able to illuminate your mind and heart to see the truth of God. So you don't need to have any of those false teachers teach you anything. They have nothing to contribute. There's nothing they can teach you that God's Word and God's Spirit is not able to teach you. Period. That's what he's saying. So he's not denying that we need teachers. He's denying that we need anything taught to us by these false teachers. Have we discussed the illuminating work of God's Spirit? Do you recall... Anybody recall? God's Spirit regenerates us at salvation. Regenerates us, causes us to be born again in the family of God 
gives us eternal life. In connection with the regenerating work of God's Spirit, the Spirit indwells us so that that regenerating work is an internal work and in connection with that internal work causing us to, to, to have eternal life, the Spirit indwells us, permanently indwells us. We should not think, for example, in Psalm, I think it's 51, when David says, Lord, do not take your spirit from me, we shouldn't think of that as indwelling. We should think of that in terms of theocratic anointing. Here's what David is saying. God, you anointed Saul as king. Well, that's, a, that's a not a permanent thing. That's a temporary thing. But you took that anointing from Saul. Lord, don't take your spirit from me. Keep that anointing on me. I want to be your faithful king, Lord. So that's what David is praying. He's not talking about the indwelling spirit. You all understand that? All right. So the spirit indwells us. And one of the functions, well, having been born again by the Spirit in internal work, the Spirit continues on in a permanent indwelling, and His presence in us is a seal. His, the Spirit is the seal indwelling us. is a seal that you and I are, are, are the children of God and uh, can anticipate all that God has promised us in the future. The Spirit of God is a down payment. He's an earnest, if you please, of all of the blessings that God has promised us when the Lord returns. But one of the ministries that the Spirit of God has is that of illuminating. And there's some confusion about what, what is this illuminating? Well, as you read uh, specifically 2 Corinthians chapter 2, all right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, God's Spirit illuminates our minds and hearts. What do I mean by that? The Spirit doesn't help us with the meaning of the text. I know that's a common understanding. He illumines me so I understand the text. No, the Spirit doesn't illumine me so I understand the text. I know this may sound strange, but the unbeliever can understand the text. He can understand John 3.16. He can understand it like I understand it. God loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. The unbeliever can read that and understand the meaning. So what is this illuminating? The illuminating of the work of God's Spirit helps me understand the significance of that passage. And the, the unbeliever can read it, and, and, and it, there's no true significance in what that passage means for that individual. He's spiritually dead. He's blinded by Satan. He reads that. He can understand the meaning, but that meaning doesn't have any significance for him. He doesn't recognize that he is a sinner, and he will perish if he doesn't believe. Now, that's the significance of the passage. Applying that truth to me. That's what the Spirit of God does. So the Spirit of God not only helps me see the significance of the passage, it also helps me recognize that this is God's Word. This is the Word of God. How does Paul put it in the Corinthian correspondence? Let him who has the Spirit recognize that these things are of God, the things I'm writing are of God. That's a terrible paraphrase, but 
That's what Paul is saying. So the illuminating work of God's Spirit helps me understand the significance of a, of a passage in terms of its application to me, to my life. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so the Spirit of God here is affirming to the readers that what John is writing is the truth. <laughs> the Spirit of God is affirming, John, what you're writing is the truth, and what you're writing is in conflict with what these false teachers are saying. You're saying the Word of God, the Spirit of God is affirming that, illuminating my mind and heart to understand that what you're writing is in fact the truth of God. That means what they're saying is not the truth of God. They have nothing they can teach you. The Spirit of God is affirming you in the truth and applying that truth to your mind, heart, and soul. Any questions about the illuminating work? All right, let's go on. <clears throat> on the contrary, God's Spirit continues to teach them, confirming them in the truth. Furthermore, the Spirit instructing them is himself absolutely true and without falsehood. Thus, just as the Spirit continues to instruct them regarding the truth, John's readers were to continue to abide in that truth, even as Christ had instructed them. By abiding in the truth, the readers would continue to abide in Christ. That is, continue to abide in a saving relationship with Christ. John's point is not that persevering in the faith is a condition for fellowship and eternal life. Rather, John's point is those who have been given eternal life through the gospel will persevere. Perseverance is the evidence of genuine faith and salvation. It's not a condition for salvation. I think we've talked about that before. Persevering in the faith is not a condition of my salvation. It is the evidence. That's the point I want to make. So I would argue, I would argue that all true believers do persevere, maybe not necessarily on the same level. Bill might persevere more faithfully than I persevere. The fact is we are both persevering. All right? <clears throat> Believers are actually commanded to persevere in two related ways. The first way is in the faith. That is, in believing the gospel. All true believers will, and therefore must, persevere in the gospel as evidence their faith is genuine and they are saved. Anyone who professes faith and fails to persevere in the gospel reveals by this that their faith was not true saving faith and that they were never saved to begin with. I think I gave my illustration about my friend, did I hear? Okay. The second way believers are commanded to persevere is in faithfulness to God and His Word. Furthermore, persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word is expected to result in good works. In other words, how do I define faithfulness to God and His Word? Well, I define it by saying, my life is characterized by good works. Now, I know we've already defined good works, but let me define it again. What is a good work? Because a good work is evidence that I'm persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word. Let me say that again. Good works are the evidence that I'm persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word. Now, what is a good work? A very, we've already defined it. I'll do it again. A good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's Word 
motivated out of faith and love toward God. I'll say that again. A good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's word that's motivated out of faith and love toward God. Let me get let me give you the classic illustration. I did it last time, I'll do it again. Repetition. Isn't that a law of learning? Snack, 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 snack. <clears throat> in Genesis twenty two, we've got Abraham binding his son Isaac, placing him on an altar, taking out a dagger, and about ready to plunge it into Isaac. And, and you and I are thinking, Abraham, what are you thinking? What are you doing, Abraham? What on earth are you doing? Why is Abraham trying to sacrifice his son Isaac? Well, because God commanded him. So would you agree agree with me that what Abraham was doing was in obedience to God's word? Okay? Remember, that's our definition. Anything you and I do in obedience to God's word. But Abraham, wait a minute, Abraham, wait a minute. I know you're obeying God, but wait a minute. This isn't just anyone. This is Isaac. This is the son that God had promised you. Now, now follow this. I believe that God promised this son to, to Abraham. God said, in your son Isaac and his offspring, i.e. Christ eventually, all of my promises, Abraham, to you will be fulfilled. What does that mean? No Isaac, no promises. Abraham, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, Abraham? Don't you love Isaac? And we would all say, he loved Isaac. He loved Isaac. But the whole point is, he loved God more. He loved God more. <laughs> all right? So anything you and I do, in obedience to God's word, motivated out of love for God, and then there's the issue of faith. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews says that Abraham was absolutely convinced that were he to slay Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Why? Because in Isaac, all those promises were going to be realized. So, was Abraham motivated by faith in God and what he was doing? Yes, he was. So, a definition of a good work is anything you and I do in obedience to God's word, motivated out of supreme love for God, and in utter confidence in God and his word. That's a good work. All right? So, that's the evidence of Persevering in faithfulness. Persevering in faithfulness produces good works. Is evidence in good works. Furthermore, persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word is expected to result in good works. Yet even though all true believers will persevere in faithfulness to God and His Word, nevertheless not all do so to the same level of success. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. I'm hoping, I'm, I would like to be the 100-fold. Sometimes I'm hoping I'm just a 30-fold. I want to be faithful. John allows for the possibility that a true believer can get caught up in some sin, even to the point where God takes the life of the believer's life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30. The Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that was not honoring the Lord. They were very selfish in the meal preceding the Lord's Supper, taking care of themselves. They had a, another family over here that was hungry, and they, I'm not going to share mine with them. <coughs> All right? 
They were not partaking of the Lord's Supper in the proper way. And so Paul says, you know, because of your disobedience to God in regard to the Lord's Supper, some of you are sick, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 11.30, some of you are sick. But then Paul goes on and says, and some of you have fallen asleep. Well, that's his description of a believer who has died. <laughs> some of you have fallen asleep. So what, what do I, here, here's my understanding, and I'll say this again later on uh, in the class, but <clears throat> a true believer can get caught up in a specific sin. 1 Corinthians 11, the sin of not honoring the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Okay. So you and I as, believer, as believers can get caught up in a specific sin, but our whole life cannot be characterized by sinfulness. Yes, we can be caught up in a given sin, a particular sin, but that doesn't mean every area of my life I am pursuing sinful choices. It means in that one area of my life I am caught up in a sin. But the other areas of my life I am not. My life is not characterized by the habit and practice of sin. I can be caught up in a given sin. You understand the distinction I'm making? I'm looking at my wife. Get the input here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Want me to do it again? Okay. Let's <laughs> go with me hang there, are you? So, John's going to say in chapter 3, a true believer cannot be characterized by the habit and practice of sin. Meaning my whole life cannot be characterized by sin. But later he says, if you see a brother sinning, well, a sin, sinning a sin. Well, that's referring to a given sin. He's involved in a given sin, and a believer can be involved in a given sin, and if he or she doesn't repent, God may, may take, can take the life. We'll come back to that when we get to chapter 5, but anyway, I'm throwing that out there because I'm, sa I'm saying here, uh, John allows the possibility for a true believer to get caught up in some sin, even the point where God takes the life. At the same time, true saving faith must produce at least some good works or it's not considered saving faith. What does James say? If someone says he has faith and has not what? Works. Can that faith save him? What does he mean, that faith? A faith without works. Can that faith save him? And James' answer to that question is a rhetorical question. The answer to James' question is no, it can't. A faith without works cannot save. Now again, let me make it clear. If you remember anything tonight, if Pastor Brown comes up to you and says, what's that guy teaching? <laughs> I hope you remember this. Works are not a condition for salvation. They are the fruit and evidence. The fruit and evidence. So much so that James says, if somebody does not have some fruit or evidence in good works, well, that faith isn't saving faith. All right? Now, last time we were here, we discussed the three elements in saving faith. You all recall that? There's the intellectual, there's the emotional, and then there's the volitional. All right? So, all three of those must be involved in my responding to the gospel for my faith to be a saving faith. All right? I have to understand the truth. I can't simply believe anything, I have to understand the truth, the gospel. I think there's an emotional aspect where I'm moved with joyfulness at what God has done for me, a sinner. And there's the volitional aspect where I 
put my trust in, I put my confidence in, I, I, I uh, in a sense, submit to Christ as my only Savior. That's the volitional aspect. So, uh, there is a faith that doesn't save. James talks about that. It's the faith of demons. But there is a faith that does save, obviously. And a true believer must persevere in that faith and also persevere in faithfulness to God and His Word. And uh, that's what we've been talking about. Also, John says that true believers cannot have lives characterized by the habit and pattern of sin. Thus, those who persevere in the faith and in faithfulness can have assurance that they have fellowship with God and eternal life. Any questions up to now? This is kind of a family here. Yes, brother. As you, as you get further stronger in the faith, as you, as you grow in the faith, as you get older in the faith, sure. Tony, you make a good point. We talk about sanctification. There is what we call positional sanctification. And we don't associate that with justification. So there's a positional sanctification at salvation called justification. In terms of our position, we have a right standing with God. Our sins are forgiven and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. All right? There's also what we call progressive sanctification. I think that's what Tony's talking about. Progressive sanctification. As a believer, I'm progressing toward greater and greater Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the key verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the key verse. But there's also what we call final sanctification, which we associate with the word glorification. That's when I am raised from the dead in a glorified body in which sin no longer dwells. That's glorification. Now, Tony is addressing progressive sanctification. And the scriptures teach us that progressive sanctification looks like this. You start here and you gradually become more conformed to Christ. Greater obedience, greater faithfulness. Absolutely true. With the dips, though. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> you been reading my mail? <laughs> yeah, let's go talk about the dips, Tony. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going from here to here. It's. But according to Second to Corinthians 3.18, it's from one stage of glory to the next. And by that he means from one level to the next higher level with the dips. With the dips. Good way of putting it, Tony. Very good way of putting it. Excellent question. A, a little bit more softballs though when I when I when I say oh, there's a question, huh? Kind of lob them. Yeah, Tony kinda of threw the hard ball there, no. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's go on. Page thirty two. So, we just checked off our first test, and now we come to the second one, the test of sonship. The test of sonship. The first was the test of fellowship, sharing in the life of God. The test of sonship means the test of being born of God. Instead of viewing eternal life as fellowship with God, John transitions 
in this section to viewing life, viewing eternal life as membership in God's family. In other words, eternal life is the possession of those who have been born again into the family of God and who therefore manifest or show evidence of divine sonship. Sonship, of course, being a generic term. Similar to the test of fellowship, the specific phrases describing... Well, let's just skip that. No, let's go ahead and go through it. Similar to the test of fellowship, the specific phrases describing sonship are found only in the first half of this section. So the question is always raised, well, you've entitled this, this whole section sonship, but that word only occurs in the first half. What about the second half? How do you put the second half under this heading? Well, here's why. Um, are only found in the first half. Included here are expressions born of God, children of God. Nevertheless, concepts of divine sonship are employed throughout this section, 228 to 46, throughout this section. In the concluding passage, for example, John refers to those who are of God or who are from God. John uses uses these expressions as abbreviated synonyms for those who are born of God. So look at those two expressions again, of God and from God. I'm arguing that John means, of God means born of God, or from God means born from God. So the concept is there, although the word perhaps is not precisely used in the second half. As before, John presents first the ethical standards involving conduct, and then the doctrinal standards involving belief. So, ethical standards first. This is what your life will look like if you pass the test of divine sonship. All right, this will be kind of poignant here. You'll know where I'm going right as soon as we read it. In human procreation, the life and characteristics of a parent are passed on to their children. Now I'm looking at you, and you're looking at me, and I would agree. I thank the Lord that both our boys look like their mom. <laughs> Amen. Do I have a witness here? I see you. I see you grinning at me, Tony. I I know what you're thinking. Same thing I'm thinking. The same is true with a new birth or regeneration. The life of God and the moral characteristics of God, the life of God and the moral characteristics of God are inherited by all who are born of God through the regenerating work of the Spirit. Thus, those who have experienced the new birth in salvation will manifest the characteristics and traits of the God who has begotten them. This then becomes the basis for the present test. Those who manifest these traits can have confidence that they are born of God. Those who do not manifest these traits fail the test and by this show that they have not been born of God. The specific characteristics John focuses on in these verses are the characteristics of God's righteousness and God's love. Those who are born of God will live righteously and will love others who have been born of God and are members of his family. All right? So, we're looking at the ethical test. The first is that sonship demands righteous conduct. And I've got in parentheses, as kind of an explanation, practicing righteousness. That's the test. Practicing righteousness. John divides this passage into two sections. He first identifies the standard for sonship, grounding that standard in the righteous character of God. Well, the standard is practicing righteousness. 
And that's grounded in the character of God, the righteous character of God. Following this, he applies the standard by contrasting the lifestyle of the children of God with the lifestyle of the children of the devil. All right, the standard. John begins by identifying the standard for the ethical test of sonship, that of practicing righteousness. That's the standard, practicing righteousness. He then reinforces the importance of the standard by addressing specific implications or truths that are linked to the standard. All right, the identification of the standard. Let's read 28 and 29. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Manifest that trait of God. John begins by repeating his exhortation from the preceding verse, specifically that his readers were to abide in Christ. He then adds an incentive for his readers to heed the exhortation. As mentioned above, to abide in Christ means to abide or persevere in the faith and in faithfulness. That's abiding in Christ. It's persevering in faith and in faithfulness. That's abiding in Christ. However, whereas the preceding verse focused on persevering in the faith, here and the following verses, John focuses on persevering in faithfulness, i.e. practicing righteousness. The reason his readers were to persevere in faithfulness, John declares, is so that they might have confidence when Christ appears and not shrink back in shame at his coming. Right, I want us to focus on that. Look at the, that last sentence. The reason his readers were to persevere in faithfulness, i.e. practicing righteousness, is so that they might have confidence when Christ appears and not shrink back in shame at his coming. I want to unpack that. The expression, when he appears, and at his coming, are both used in the New Testament to refer to Christ's return and to the events surrounding his return. When he appears, at his coming. The specific event John has in view in this passage is Christ coming to gather his church from the earth just prior to the seven-year tribulation period. This event is referred to as the rapture of the church and involves believers in the body of Christ receiving their resurrection bodies, being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, being taken to the third heavens, and having their works evaluated at the Bema or judgment seat of Christ. Now, Eddie, we have that handout, do we? Yeah. I don't know if we'll get to that, but I think you'll find that handout interesting. You know, what takes place at the Bema seat of Christ, where you and I will stand? What takes place there? Uh, you've got a hand out there where I cover that. I think you'll find it interesting. All right? But don't read it too late at night. And, and, don't, and, and don't read it near an open flame. All right? <laughs> all right, go on. Those who persevere in faithfulness to God's Word, John explains, will have confidence in the Lord's commending them when they stand before him. Those who have faltered in their faithfulness, on the other hand, will experience a measure of disappointment and shame. Assuming the two references to the Lord's return in this verse are addressing the rapture, the second group would refer to believers 
who because they falter in their faithfulness suffer the loss of rewards. It is possible, however, that John purposely changes his expression from when he appears, we might have confidence when he appears, to the expression at his coming, that we don't shrink back in sh at shame at his coming, when describing the second group to distinguish the two groups and the events in view. In other words, he may have changed his phrases to inform us that two events are in view and two groups are in view. If this were the case, then the second phrase, at his coming, would refer to Christ's coming to the earth at the end of the tribulation. When he comes to the earth, he will resurrect Old Testament and tribulation saints and will remove unbelievers from the earth. In this case, those who shrink back in shame would refer to unbelievers. So we have two possibilities with this verse. Either he's talking about believers who have greater faithfulness and have confidence versus believers who are not as faithful and who have a measure of shame. That's one interpretation. Both taking place at the rapture. Or he could have two different groups in view. Believers at the rapture are confident. Unbelievers at the return of Christ to the earth shrink back in shame. You understand the two options, or do you want me to go through that again? I can put it on the board. Yes or no? Sure, yeah. Let's do that. Bell work. I wonder if I could erase, erase that. Uh, I don't think no, so. I don't no, think so. I don't think so. Yeah, please. No. No. I think not. Wasn't I just speaking about faithfulness to God? There's a telephone number on the door. Yeah. Eddie, what's your telephone number? All right. The first, the first interpretation, look at uh, verse 28. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away. All right. The first interpretation says, well, that's describing two categories of believers at the rapture. Those who have confidence have uh, maintained tremendous faithfulness. Those who shrink back, they've progressed, but theirs has been much more faltering. And as a consequence, they, they lose reward. All right. People that are alive, people that are alive, right? Not people that are already. Well, actually, the Bema seat—it's all believers in the body of Christ. Paul says, um, "When the Lord uh, comes, those who have died in Christ will be raised first, and then those who are alive uh, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air." So it's all believers in the body of Christ are are, are standing before the Lord. Some, because of their great faithfulness, have confidence. Some, because they have faltered a bit and are going to lose reward, have a, have a level, level of shame. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that actually you don't have the same event. You have two different events. All right? So here's, here's how you read this, verse 28. When he appears, that's the rapture, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. That's referring to his coming to the earth after the tribulation. So the rapture takes place before the tribulation, but those who shrink back are referring to unbelievers who stand before the Lord after the tribulation when he comes to the earth. 
And when he comes to the earth, you might recall in Matthew 25, he judges the sheep and the goat. The sheep are believers. They are allowed to remain with him. The goats are unbelievers. They are taken away in death. And so those who would shrink back with that second interpretation would be unbelievers who are on the earth when the Lord returns to the earth after the tribulation. They shrink back because they're unbelievers. That's the second interpretation. Does that make sense? Is that more information than you really want to know? <laughs> All right, let's go on. It is difficult to know which of the two interpretations is intended. John has consistently contrasted the response of believers with unbelievers, and that would favor the second interpretation. At the same time, the immediate context, in the immediate context, he appears to be addressing a single group. Here are believers, little children. Look at verse 28. Little children. He's addressing little children. And that would, that would argue, if it's a single group, that would argue for the first interpretation. Since it is not clear that John is contrasting two entirely different groups in this verse, or that he has two separate events in view when speaking of the Lord's return, the first interpretation is preferred. So, let me just see if I can illustrate this. How would I liken the Bema Seat judgment? Well, I'm going to borrow from my handout, okay? I'm going to steal the thunder from my handout. But still read it, because I think you'd enjoy reading it. It's going to be helpful. I would liken the Bema Seat Judgment, where you and I stand before the Lord. We are raptured before the tribulation, seven-year tribulation takes place on the earth. We are up in the air when, that, when all that takes place. We are in the third heavens with the Lord, and we are standing in front of His Bema Seat. Bema Seat simply means the place where He is judging us as terms of our works, okay? That's all he's judging. He's judging our works. You and I are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He's not judging whether we are going to be invited to participate in his kingdom and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. That's all been settled at salvation. Alright? That's all been settled at salvation. Our sins have been forgiven. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. All that Christ is evaluating at the Bema Seat is our works. Do you understand that? It's our works. First Corinthians chapter 3. It's our works. Now, I would liken the Bema Seat to a graduation ceremony. Now, at a graduation ceremony, some students have done really well, and they get a whole bunch of honors, don't they? But some guys are like me, and we kind of just scrape through. We're kind of looking over our shoulder to make sure nobody jerks us out of the line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I knew what that meant, I probably would have had a chance at it. All right. Now, at a graduation, all of the students who go through the line and receive their diploma reflect on their career as students at that institution. And some have done very well, and some like me maybe didn't do so well, all right? But they all graduate, don't they? They all graduate. And although there may be a momentary sorrow, boy, I sure wish I had attended that class and not just forgot about it and headed toward the beach and got that bad grade and, you know, this, that, and the other thing, there is a kind of a, a sense of remorse, isn't there? And even shame in the sense of, well, you know, if I had worked harder, I could have done better. 
You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But you know, I've been to a, uh, to a lot of graduations. I've been teaching now between 30 and 40 years on the seminary level. I can't think of a single time when the students walked across the platform, any of them were crying or weeping or wailing. None of them. What was, what was the singular attitude of every one of them in all 35, whatever? Joy. Joy that they've been graduated. They, they were on the platform. They received the diploma. The joy is the one that is characteristic of the Bema Seat. Does that all make sense about the Bema Seat, the judgment? Okay. Still read the handout because I think you'll enjoy that. It may answer some questions for you. <laughs> All right. In the next verse, John supports his exhortation by establishing the principle upon which it is based. If the readers know that God is righteous, then they know that those who have been born of him demonstrate this fact by righteous living. John assumes that his readers know that God is righteous, that is, that his words and actions are wholly consistent with his own character, and that he is without sin, John also assumes his readers recognize from this that all those born into the family of God in salvation or at salvation will demonstrate the reality of the new birth by having their lives characterized, present tense, present tense, by righteous conduct. Such conduct, John declares, is the necessary evidence of regeneration or the new birth. All right, again, this is a test. And I think it's one that you and I can look at ourselves and say, yes, we're passing the test. Is my life, my, my entire life, characterized more by practicing righteousness or practicing unrighteousness? Well, I sin every day, but the overall character of my life is, I, I'm, I'm trying to love my Lord, I'm trying to obey my Lord, I falter, I sin, but I, I still strive. So I would say my life overall, don't ask me for a percentage that I don't want to embarrass myself, but overall my life is more characterized by righteousness than unrighteousness. You understand what I'm saying? And that's, that, that's all that John is saying. How, 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 as you look at your life, how is it characterized? It, are, you, are, you, are you characterized by practicing righteousness more than practicing unrighteousness. That's the point I think he's making. Yeah. Can we go back to the being seat for one minute? Yeah, sure. Um, you know how the Lord says um, many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first? Yeah. Is he speaking there of dead works? I think what he's saying there is that many who are prominent in this life will not be prominent in the human age, and therefore in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who are prominent in this life often struggle with pride, and often struggle with having a servant heart. They're prominent. So the Lord says, you know, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you become a servant. And if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you become a servant of all. Because that's how greatness. Well, the guy who's a servant of all is least in this life. Mm -hmm. But he's going to be great in the life to come. I just hope I can see him or her sitting next to the Lord where I'm sitting. In a sense. But I think the meek there is a reference to those who are trusting in the Lord 
they're not taking matters into their own own hands and seeking to right every wrong and uh, etc. But they're trusting in the Lord. That's I think what meekness refers to. So I think it's referring to believers generally. Okay, good question, excellent question. All right, we've got a few more minutes. Let's press on. All right, the implications and the importance of the standard three one through three. Let me read these verses. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, he purifies himself just as he is pure. <clears throat> Having established the standard by which sonship or the new birth can be identified, practicing righteousness, John reinforces the importance of the standard by reflecting on the implications of the new birth in the following three verses. The first implication is that the new birth defines the reader's relationship to God and to the world. In their relationship to God, John notes that the new birth constitutes the readers as children of God. And this relationship is a gift that reveals God's amazing love. There is no other way to explain how sinners, deserving eternal condemnation and punishment, should be constituted as God's own children, except as an unparalleled display of God's amazing, redeeming love. The counterpart to this, John adds, is that the world of unbelievers does not recognize the reality of what the readers are. But this should not come as a surprise. Humanity did not recognize the reality of who Jesus was when he came as the Savior of the world. For this reason, John declares, neither does the world recognize who believers are. John's point is that just as the world rejected Jesus, it will reject the readers as well. The second implication of the reader's status as the children of God is that their full and complete conformity to the moral image of Christ is yet future, full and complete conformity. John states that while the readers already are the children of God, they are not yet what they will be in terms of Christ's likeness. At the same time, the readers know that when Christ appears, they will be made fully like him, for they will see him as he is in all his glory. Conformity in holiness to the image of Christ is a gradual and necessary process in this life for all who are the children of God. We've talked about this already. Yet full conformity to Christ's holiness will not be realized until the Lord returns. At that time, believers will be given their resurrection bodies in which sin no longer dwells, and they will be fully conformed to the moral likeness of their glorified Lord. The third and final implication of the reader's status as the children of God is that they are to strive for moral purity in anticipation of the Lord's return. John says, all those who have their hope fixed on the Lord's return purify themselves just as he is pure. To hope in the Lord's return means having a confident expectation that the Lord will return just as he promised. Those who have this hope, John declares, will eventually, excuse me, will continually, present tense, continually purify themselves. This involves not only ongoing confession of sins, but also ongoing obedience to God's word. The reason why those who are persuaded of the blessed hope purify themselves, John, John explains, 
is because they anticipate someday standing before him who is their Lord and Savior. They will see him who is absolutely pure of any and all defilement from sin and to be made like him. And that fact of what we will be motivates us to strive for that even now, purifies himself even now. Uh, let me add a thought here. Now, I, I, uh, I'm sure I echo your, your, your feelings when I say I, I, really, I really long for the Lord to return. I, I long for Him to return because I want righteousness to reign. And I don't see that at all now. I want that, I want that to take place. But even more than that, I want the Lord to return because you know, I struggle with indwelling sin. I hate my sin. I love my Savior. I'm like Paul in Romans 7. Too often I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. And too often I don't do the things I know I want to do and, and, and should be doing. So I'm really looking forward to the Lord's return when that sin that dwells within me will be removed with my resurrection body and I'll be glorified and I'll be fully conformed to the image of my Savior. Now, I'll be fully conformed to his moral character. We can think of God's attributes, and this would include Jesus' attributes, in terms of attributes of his greatness and attributes of his goodness. The attributes of his greatness are those that distinguish him as God. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability. We don't share in those. But there are also the attributes of his goodness. We call those the moral attributes, are also the communicable attributes, those that can be communicated to us. Love, mercy, kindness, etc. So we're going to be conformed to the moral attributes of our Lord on a finite level. He has them on an infinite level. But you and I will have them on a finite level. And I long for that. But what John is saying, as I think about the Lord's return and my being free from this constant daily struggle with sin and Satan and all of that, I am, to, I am to strive to be pure because I know that he is pure and he wants me to be like he is. So much so that when he comes, I will be like he is. So I'm striving in this life to be pure. It's a motivation because my Savior who saved me is pure. And he wants me to be pure. He wants me to be pure. All right, we're out of time, so we're going to stop here. I've got to miss the next two weeks. So uh, I, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I've got a minute here. There's a uh, society called the Evangelical Theological Society. All right? It's a society of, of uh, college and seminary teachers who claim to be evangelical. We're evangelical. We're fundamentalists, but we're evangelical. And they meet once a year. This year they're meeting on the West Coast. And what you do is you uh, want to read a paper at the society. It goes on for three days, and they'll have maybe uh, oh, several hundred read papers and that kind of thing. And so I've been asked to read a paper at this, at this meeting, along with several hundred others. And so I've got to go out next week to that meeting, so I'll miss on this Wednesday. 
And then the following week, I think we're all off because of Thanksgiving. So you're going to be, we'll miss two weeks, but only one week of class. And I've asked Eddie to take us from where we are up to chapter five. Mark will do a great job. So, you all have a great night. I'll see you in three weeks, Lord willing. If you, if you have to think of us, pray, because uh, I'm giving a paper that the majority who are going to be there are not going to necessarily appreciate. What's, what's the topic um, the, the particular group I'm, I'm addressing is called the Dispensational Study Group, where all the dispensationalists are. And, and today you have two kinds of dispensationalists. You have what we call the traditional dispensationalist. That's what I am. That's what Pastor Brown is. And you have what we call progressive dispensationalists who see, uh, who, who have, uh, uh, how should I put it? They, they have some differences. All right. They, they, uh, they see a present form of the Davidic kingdom. They uh, don't see the, the difference between Israel, national Israel, and the church quite to the degree that I see it. Uh, you're, you're speaking from a traditional... Uh, I, I am, and I'm responding to the progressive. A, to the progressive. Well, so he's going to give his presentation, I will give mine, and then two progressives will speak after me. It's on Wednesday night. So one yeah, Only so one? You only have yeah. a traditional? Yeah, that? because the, the chairman is a progressive. There'll be questions afterwards. So I jokingly say, since yeah. I'm a traditionalist and I'm, I'm surrounded by these progressive dispensationalists, I feel like a lion in a den of Daniel, somewhat afraid to open my mouth. So if you think about it, I appreciate you praying for me. It's a week from tonight. <laughs>